the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads town of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information on this program, please log on to shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester or contact the George Tyler Moore Center directly at 304-876-5429. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. We're rolling right along here with more interviews, and today I'm interviewing Scott Douglas. Scott works at the Fort Dobbs site in North Carolina. It's an old 18th century French and Indian War fort that's being reconstructed. Uh, they've been doing archaeological digs there for a number of years, and this fort is going to be crisp and clean and new. Hopefully by the end of this year, the whole fortress will be up and running. It's basically uh, a large wooden structure, blockhouse style structure, and it will be ready for you to visit and view here by the end of 2019. Uh, I think Scott said it should be up and running by September or around September. Hopefully they stay on that calendar. Uh, but I really appreciate you all tuning in. This one's going to be great. It's about uh, archaeology and reconstruction. Uh, we talk about 18th century on the North Carolina frontier. Cover a lot of things in a short period of time. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast, like the podcast, share it. It really means a lot to me to get the word out there about some new history being put out to the masses uh, it's really something that I enjoy doing, and I enjoy getting your feedback as well. So without further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Scott Douglas from the Fort Dobbs site in North Carolina. Hey everyone, welcome back to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. Thank you for tuning into this, and uh, thank you for subscribing and sharing and liking the podcast. It's been a tremendous thing to to do, and today I'm so happy to have Scott Douglas on. Uh, Scott is a uh, he does work at Fort Dobbs, and I'm very happy to have him on here after some minor technical difficulties at the end of last week. We finally got everything figured out. So, Scott, thanks for being on. Yeah, pleasure. Good to be here. It's great to have you, and and uh, you are located at, at 
Fort Dobbs in North Carolina, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Fort Dobbs is uh, uh, one of the state historic sites run by the state of North Carolina. Uh, we're actually in uh, Statesville. It's uh, it's about an hour north of Charlotte. Okay. I've been in, in around that area, so I know right where you're at. I wondered exactly where sure. in North Carolina it, uh, Fort Dobbs was. Yeah, so it, it's kind of the, the western edge of the like the Piedmont section. We're not quite in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the frontier at one point. Uh, it's definitely not anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the uh, some of the French and Indian War uh, forts we have up in up here in western Pennsylvania, uh, kind of along the same vein. Sure, exactly. Yeah, it's you know you you kind of de facto during the French and Indian War get you know sometimes planned, sometimes not. Almost a, a chain of forts going up the frontier of all of England's colonies, and uh, Fort Dobbs happens to be the the one that. North Carolina had on uh, the western side of our colony. So when did Fort Dawes become a thing? When was it first started? Well, uh, pretty soon after the French and Indian War uh, kicks off, you know, in in 1754, uh, as uh, Virginia's military action, uh, uh, you know, is instigated against the French, and we start to see uh, actual fighting occur. Uh, Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia puts out a call for assistance uh, to the other colonies, as well as asking uh, Britain itself to send troops. Uh, and actually, North Carolina, uh, despite being one of the poorest of all of the colonies, uh, is the first to uh, vote to raise soldiers to send to Virginia's aid. Hmm. Um, they don't actually get up to Pennsylvania in time to help uh, George Washington avoid his defeat at uh, Fort Necessity, hmm. um, but it was the thought that counted, you know. So <laughs> right, right, <laughs> they, uh, yeah. They, they quickly try to get some guys in service and scrape together some guns. Um, but it's in uh, 1755, the next year, uh, that uh, the colony's newly arrived governor, Arthur Dobbs, uh, really tries to take command of the military situation, put his colony in a state of defense. Um, he's really worried about the French uh, attacking our, the coastal ports, uh, and he builds eventually a series of forts out there at the ocean. Uh, but he also has an eye to the frontier and to you know, uh, possible raids and invasion by French allied native peoples. And so to that end, he, uh, has Fort Dobbs constructed. Mm. That, that what, when was the first time the Fort actually came under attack, if at all during this, uh, I guess it was during the Anglo Cherokee war. Yeah. So, so, uh, the, the Anglo Cherokee war is kind of a, a, a sub war that's mm. it's spawned by the French and Indian war itself. That's, mm still going on. Uh, A few years into the conflict, we see uh, uh, the Cherokee, who have been uh, tentative allies of the British in the first couple years of the conflict, that alliance breaks apart. And we can get into the the details of that more if you want in a bit. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when the alliance crumbles, uh, you see sort of this this war within the bigger war develop between these former allies, the Cherokee mm. and the English. And that happens in 1759 is when uh, blood really starts being shed between the two groups. Um, so it's actually, we know in uh, 1760, on February 27th, 1760, uh, is the one documented uh, action that occurs at Fort Dobbs itself. There's a lot of other 
uh, violence in the region, very close by the fort uh, in some cases. Uh, but there's one uh, battle actually at the fort itself that we know of. So what kinds of, uh, when it comes to this kind of era, uh, a lot of my listeners uh, deal with 19th century, 20th century, but I do have some 18th century listeners. Uh, as far as sure. primary sources are concerned with this fort, what kind of primary sources did you do you all have that has uncovered some of this history? Well, it's actually it, it's been uh, kind of a struggle for uh, historians over uh, five decades now uh, to dig up enough about Fort Dobbs. Actually, North mm. Carolina uh, has the disadvantage that. Uh, there's a lot of records that either weren't kept uh, or at least weren't preserved very well. Mm -hmm. uh, we see probably the effects of the American Civil War on some of the state's archives, uh, you know, 80 years after the French and Indian War. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of missing pieces of the puzzle. We do have uh, the general government uh, records, like the, the minutes of the assembly. Uh, we have uh, certain uh, yeah, crucial letters and uh, things like the description of Fort Dobbs that were very fortunate survive as part of the colonial records of North Carolina. Um, but there's actually had to be a lot of detective work just to find, uh, you know, even the smallest bits and pieces of evidence of, you know, as far as troop returns or uh, provision lists or things like that. And it's kind of an ongoing uh, bit of research that that uh, our state archivists are uh, working on. Um, but uh, as far as Fort Dobbs itself goes, we again, the, the crucial piece of the puzzle was uh, being able to, to find a, a written description of the fort itself. Uh, the fort was actually uh, abandoned as soon as the French and Indian War was over. Um, in, uh, you know, after the, uh, well, the war with the Cherokee is over at the end of 1761. Uh, the war with France globally is over in early 1763. And at that point, the, the frontier of North Carolina that the fort had been defending uh, moves west, and they don't need the wooden fort itself anymore. They abandon it, and it quickly disappears. It's picked apart. It deteriorates. It's turned back into farmland, and we don't actually have any contemporary drawings uh, of the fort, of what it looked like. Um, so uh, we have one brief written description giving some of the main dimensions uh, and a lot of insightful clues as to how it was constructed. Uh, but then it's been a, a bit of detective work, uh, starting with archaeologists and continuing with historians, trying to piece together what it actually looked like uh, so we could ultimately uh, reconstruct it. So that was one of the questions I was going to ask was, what did this fort look like or how big was this fort? But I guess that can be considered almost an unanswered question as a whole then, right? Because the archaeology is going to help uncover that. Literally. <laughs> sure. And, and, and it has. And, uh, you know, the, so the fort, uh, we know from uh, the description uh, and, and looking at similar forts to what was described, uh, there's uh, that there are drawings of it's we've been able to piece it together. It's not your typical uh, what we think of as a frontier fort in the 18th century. It's not a, a stockade wall with, you know, lots of small buildings inside or, or block houses at the corners. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually a, a rather unusual design. It, it was a building uh, that was described as being three stories, uh, having three floors inside of it uh, with walls of oak logs that were 24 and a half feet high. 
Um, so they're actually stacked, uh, squared off oak timbers um, that uh, we know, and some of them were, were massive. They were 16 inches square, these logs that were being uh, stacked one on top of the other. Um, and it's really, it's built as a barracks building um, that's a self-contained defensive position. It doesn't have any kind of an outer wall uh, whatsoever. It's just basically a big wooden rectangle of logs uh, with two corners jutting out to allow for gunfire in different directions. Um, and there's a, a couple forts that we have drawings of uh, that were similar, that were in New York or what is now Maine, uh, built in the same time period. Uh, this is the only one that we know of here in the southern colonies that followed that plan. So is this, this kind of like an oversized blockhouse then? You know, we, it is. It's a okay. it's a it's a blockhouse on steroids. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so okay. instead of your you know typical just you know two story at the corner of a fort uh, kind of deal that maybe you know ten guys can man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean it's a it's a living space. It's it's uh, you know with a, a central chimney. There's actually uh, uh, that's dividing the building into multiple rooms for different uses for enlisted men's quarters for officers quarters. Uh, there's a, a cellar that's below the three story structure for food and ammunition storage. Um, it has a well that's, uh, was actually inside the building. It's a totally protected source of water, wow. uh, for these men. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's their house, uh, it's their barracks, but it's, built out of materials that can withstand any kind of musketry that is going to come across. Uh, they're not really worried in North Carolina about the French army actually invading Western North Carolina. They don't really have a lot of field forces uh, directed at the South, just like the British army is mainly active up North. So they don't have to defend this big towering blockhouse against artillery. Uh, it's just got to withstand musket fire uh, from Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's a huge, like, 8,000-square-foot timber structure. Wow. that That's a pretty big structure for that time to be all encased like that. It's pretty amazing. Oh, definitely. In fact, it was uh, the, the description uh, uh, notes that it was a substantial building. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually been kind of funny as we've been reconstructing at some of our visitors that have come to the site and watched, you know, check up on the progress. I've had people, modern 21st century people, use the term substantial when they mm-hmm. see the building. And it's, it's not a term that I use in my everyday life <laughs> right. you know, to describe them. Right. I just think it's interesting how they use that exact term that was used in the historic description of, wow, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. a huge building. Yeah. In the 1760s, when this this uh, fort is basically left go and and uh, settlements move away or or the population moves west, and the fort's neglected basically for years, do you, are there theories as to maybe pieces of the fort were taken to local farms to use for building or or anything like that, or is That's that still theory. yeah. Uh, we and we unfortunately, you know, it, it cuts both ways. Uh, it's it's good and it's bad. We we have oral history of mm-hmm. the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obviously has to be taken with a huge grain of salt. Um, but uh, yeah, the the oral history gives you know tells us about a couple of buildings that 
unfortunately themselves no longer exist, <laughs> but other later structures like a schoolhouse uh, that supposedly incorporated some of the timbers from the fort, uh, starting in the you know buildings that are constructed around the 1790s, uh, early 1800s. Um, we, we know the fort, while it's officially closed in 1764, uh, we know it deteriorates really fast. Uh, the, the next governor of North Carolina, William Tryon, uh, actually tours the western part of his colony. He views the remains of Fort Dobbs in 1766, and he already describes it as a ruin. He mm. said it couldn't be defended even if it were needed. Uh, we know a decade after that, when the Revolutionary War is kicking off, it's still standing. It actually shows up as a, a landmark on maps of the colony, of the new state. Um, there's a, another war with the Cherokee uh, tied into the Revolution. The Cherokee remain on the British side in that conflict. And local settlers, uh, fearing rumors of Cherokee attacks, uh, take shelter there, even though it's an abandoned, rotten hulk of a building with no soldiers, no provisions. It's still enough of a defensive structure compared to their cabins that they go there. Um, but it's sometime after that, sometime after the revolution, that it uh, very uh, evidently, you know, people just start getting rid of it. And yeah, they recycle some of the materials. Uh, Archaeology has shown a, a pretty large lens of burned. Uh, material in the cellar of the fort. Um, so we, we think it's likely at one point uh, that they, at the very least, use that as a burning pit as they're dismantling the building um, if they don't torch the whole thing itself just to turn it into farmland. So Yeah. How has that archaeology helped with the reconstruction efforts? Well, a lot. Uh, you know, we uh, there there was no foundation for the fort that was found, uh, and we think that's actually part of the reason that uh, it deteriorated so fast is that the logs were likely placed just right on the ground, um, uh, and that's not something you want to do if you want to build a permanent structure, obviously. Um, but they must have viewed it during the war as a temporary measure, just something to get by for a few years. Uh, and so, you know, even there, the lack of a Finding the lack of a foundation in archaeology gives us clues about how they built it, why it disappears so fast. Um, the uh, original cellar, the gunpowder magazine, that well, uh, also a defensive ditch uh, surrounding the building that we think was likely filled with an abatis of sharpened tree branches. Mm -hmm. um, all those earthen features were able to be uh, restored. Um, we have a we're blessed here in this part of North Carolina with very hard clay soil, uh, which is not great if you want to plant a garden, but it is good for preserving uh, subterranean, you know, <laughs> shovel marks and things like that in the yeah. ground so that we were able to restore the profile of all that mm -hmm. um, and give us the area in which the building stood. And mm -hmm. then that coupled with the written description of it, you know, allowed us to pinpoint it pretty well. That's awesome. When, when did uh, the archaeological dig start? At Fort Dobbs? Well, I mean, uh, the first record we have of somebody digging at the site of the fort is actually from 1847. Wow. Um, we know at that point there's nothing left. Uh, the well itself has collapsed and been filled in. There's nothing visible, really. But 
local people still know that's where the fort was. And evidently, in 1847, some uh, locals decided that they wanted to act on a, an, an urban legend that they had uh, that the fort's cannons had been thrown down the well. Hmm. Um, they wanted to find these cannons. Uh, and so they start digging, and they, they dig all the way to the bottom of the fort's well shaft. Um, they actually don't find any cannons because we know today that everything was taken out of the building uh, at the end of the war. Uh, but that's actually the first time that people dig to discover something about Fort Dobbs. Um, official archaeology begins there, and uh, I think the first test dig is in 1968. Um, at that time, the property was actually preserved by the Daughters of the American Revolution. They had taken it upon themselves back in 1909 to protect the site, uh, but they didn't know very much about it. And so the state of North Carolina uh, started digs in the 60s. Um, and since then, we've had, uh, of, to varying scales, 10 archaeological investigations so far. But some of those early ones, you know, they, they dug up an acre of land all around the fort site, and they lasted all summer uh, as a single dig. So, And through all of this, uh, is there a nonprofit that runs the operation to help fund all of this? Well, yeah, uh, there's actually a really uh, effective partnership in place right now between the state of North Carolina, which uh, owns and operates the property. Uh, you know, the, the state maintains a, a small staff of us that work there. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we are a state government entity, uh, but we have a, a nonprofit group associated with us. They're known as the Friends of Fort Dobbs. And uh, the Friends, through you know, memberships, through donations, uh, by obtaining grants that we, that we can't necessarily get as a government organization, mm -hmm. um, the Friends of Fort Dobbs have done stellar work. Uh, in the, I guess they're in, in their current incarnation, about a 16 year old organization uh, to enable us to put on special events, educational programs to build up our living history, uh, you know, closet and weapons and all that stuff. And ultimately, you know, their biggest thing has been uh, they've been the ones who kickstarted the uh, the reconstruction of the fort itself. Um, they actually, uh, under the direction of a, a former director of the site, uh, Beth Hill, who's at Fort Ticonderoga right now, uh, they uh, were able to start the process of planning and designing and, and fundraising. Uh, and, uh, you know, they actually ended up uh, raising and spending more than a million dollars of private money. Uh, on this project before the state of North Carolina then decided, okay, you know, we're going to finish this up. So, right. <laughs> so it's been a good uh, public private partnership between the two. Now is the Ford finished with reconstruction or is it still under reconstruction? We are almost done. In fact, uh, I was at the site today and uh, for the first time in two and a half years since we started the recon the physical reconstruction, there is no orange construction fence uh, <laughs> on our historics anymore. <laughs> they, they, they actually took it up. Uh, but the building itself, yeah, we're in the final stages of rebuilding it. Um, it is full size. It is on the original location. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, uh, we have inspections to go through. Construction is going to be done in a month or so. Uh, we expect the fort to officially uh, be able to welcome the public inside uh, before fall, probably in September. Uh, we're going to open it. So. Wow, that's amazing. That's a great, that's a great yeah, turnaround our, time. 
Uh, it is. It's not too bad. I mean, it's, it's taken us about twice as long as it took them to build the first one uh, <laughs> in the 1750s. Right. But, uh, right. you know, we've had to source timber from different places and, and incorporate, of course, some modern structural elements uh, that they didn't have to. But, uh, yeah, and our goal is to, to set it up entirely as a living history uh, exhibit. Uh, mm. So all reproduction you know, furniture and have uh, costumed interpreters going about the daily lives of the garrison there. Uh, for a long time, you know, we've had uh, just I've, I've actually worked at the site since 2007. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started, the job was to tell this history and get people to step into the past at a place that was not even an active archaeological site. It was just a hole in the ground mm -hmm. where there had been archaeology going on, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and so to, to get to this point now of now having this massive fort that we're about to be able to use uh, is pretty incredible. That was something else I was wondering, Scott, because as the site is being rebuilt and reconstructed and more preservation efforts are underway, and it often makes me wonder about how the historical interpretation changes now, because, you know, you had to use so much of your, your, uh, basically your curiosity of what it may have looked like back then. And now all of a sudden here's a finished work in front of you. Uh, the, the school kids, sure. the school kids that would have been there seven years ago and are now grown up are going to revisit and be like, wow, that's kind of what I thought it would look like, or that is nothing what I thought it would look like. Yeah. yeah. You know, no, it's, it's a good point. And actually, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've been having a growing number of people, uh, you know, stop by who, you know, it's a pretty common thread, actually. I came in school, you know, 10 years ago or in some cases 30 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people are, are amazed to, to actually see something there. And it's not like what a lot of people uh, imagined it might have been. Again, you just hear Frontier Fort and you get an image in your mind. Um, and Fort Dobbs is very different from that image. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it is going to change our interpretation, but I think it's actually been an advantage for us to not have a building for so long. Uh, I think we've avoided uh, the pitfall that you sometimes encounter at, uh, you know, uh, sites that focus on restored buildings where sometimes that can be a crutch. Uh, you know, the whole point is just, Hey, look through this building at this old stuff that's inside. Right. Um, and some, some sites do an amazing job of, of actually bringing those spaces to life uh, through interpretation, some museums ne don't necessarily. Uh, and, you know, we, we haven't had a building to rely on. So uh, while we have a small staff, we have a, an incredible volunteer corps at Fort Dobbs of, of reenactors and a lot of people that are local that are out there all the time during the year and, and have been giving actual life to the place and helping people to imagine you know, even the building that's not there. So in a way, you know, uh, we are going to have the building now, but to us, it's just going to be another tool that we can mm -hmm. use. And it, it, it shouldn't be something that we rely on as a crutch. So, right. Yeah. I, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying there. It's almost like you've got a new uniform now to put on an interpreter. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a new thing to showcase, uh, a very expensive uniform to right. put on someone, but yeah. It's, uh, it's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and how has your uh, since you've been there since 2007, so you're you've gone going on 12 years now. Uh, what's been the biggest impact for you in the whole process? What has like really hit you about this entire 
ordeal and i shouldn't say ordeal that makes it sound negative but this whole effort well, sometimes you know, sometimes it's an ordeal yeah some, yeah oh yeah it's the history field sometimes it's going to be an ordeal yeah yeah no well i i, I think you know there's an incredible well well two things and one is the there's an incredible amount that we know now that we didn't know as far as not not talking about the history but as far as how do you fundraise and design and build a 8,000 square foot blockhouse fort, you know, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of miscon, you know, well, not misconceptions, preconceived notions or ideas of, you know, how things would go in the process that, uh, you know, continually got blown out of the water or changed or altered. And, uh, you know, you, you, especially when you get into the, uh, governmental building codes and things like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, but having a good team of people that can meet those challenges and, you know, keep coming up with solutions and ways to get around uh, obstacles that have come up through this very long process um, to get us to having that for there, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and to that end, I mean, the tenacity of all of our volunteers and staff uh, to get it to this point, I think is something that, you know, back in 2007, uh, it was kind of a, almost a pie in the sky sort of idea that it would actually ever happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been impressive to, uh, uh have all this help, uh, to get us to this point. That's great. That's great. Where can people go online to find out more information on the fort or, or how to visit the fort, Scott? Uh, well, uh, we uh, have a very active Facebook page, Fort Dobbs State Historic Site. Um, uh, we keep regular updates up up on that. Uh, lots of historical posts. We do have a uh, website as well, fortdobbs.org, uh, that has a, a lot of the more in-depth history on it. And uh, people can also uh, uh, learn more about any of our state-run historic sites uh, through the uh, state of North Carolina's uh, website nc.gov uh, they can find our uh, historic sites division and uh, learn more about that uh, are there any public events that anyone can come to yeah we have uh, several uh, living history based events throughout the course of each year uh, some are bigger than others some have more specific focuses uh uh, we uh, have a, a big annual reenactment that's in April of every year called War for Empire. Uh, but uh, uh, coming up in the end of June, we have a uh, uh, we're recreating a, a muster of the local militia from the region just to talk about training and uh, what actually you know it meant to be a member of the militia at the time. The the fact that it was required by law. Uh, you know, we uh, 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 sometimes go into the punishments that uh, uh, men would have inflicted if they uh, <laughs> showed up without the proper equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're really gearing towards right now this this being able to open the fort uh, again, likely in September. Um, and at that point, our, our living histories are definitely going to change a lot. Again, having that big tool uh, to be actually able to show uh, a living, breathing, uh, you know, fortified barracks. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I hope a lot of my listeners get out to see it, and I hope I get to see it. Uh, I definitely want to come down yeah, well, and visit. I haven't been in North Carolina in a couple of years, so I have to revisit. Well, you can come crash with us. It'll be fine. We'll give you oh, a yeah. bunk in the fort. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I can just stay in the fort, can I? I can. <laughs> I've done that before. Not that one, but I've done it in other yeah. ones. Uh, yeah. but, but, yeah, that's great, Scott. I appreciate 
you coming on the, on the show here and and explaining some of Fort Dobbs history and the archaeology behind it, uh, giving everyone a little a little taste of it, and they can uh, go online and and check out more about it. They can come visit and get uh, some more in depth living history background on it. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on and giving everyone an introduction to Fort Dobbs in North Carolina. Yeah, thanks again for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, tune in next week for more interviews. Mm-hmm.